Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Alexander Seredyuk. Alexander is a graduate student at Kafoskari University of Venice. Alexander is also a researcher at the Glue Leaders Think Tank. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Alexander. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a true honor. So first of all, before we dive into a bit more of a discussion around Ukraine, I'm interested in the GLUE Global Leaders in Unity and Evolvement think tank. What's the purpose of that think tank and what are your key activities Yes, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, essentially, Global Leaders in Unity and Evolvement is an organization that has been around for a while. Its founder, uh, Paul McAllister, has done a lot of work. He is attending a lot of different conferences. He's a known person in think tank circles. He has been working tirelessly this summer, attending T20 in Indonesia, going to uh, Germany for uh, various conferences and going to Davos, of course. However, the organization itself didn't have the people to, you know, fully kind of work towards the goal, which is empowering young minds for a better future. Essentially, what we're striving toward is we're trying to unite young people, students, graduates to do research and do analysis about the topics that are of importance in today's world. Some of our areas, of, they pertain to Ukraine, pertain to the United States of America, to environment, to various events in Asia. We have researchers coming from these countries and therefore, uh, it's one way to amplify voices from these specific regions. We're trying to bring quality analysis for the people who might be interested in learning a little bit more about the topic. We are really trying to condense you know, a lot of research into succinct analysis that people could read about and have uh, a ready opinion on, more or less. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's certainly reflected in your articles. I'll link to the site in the show notes, but do you have the website <laughs> top of mind? Yes. Yes. It's glueinstitute.org. And we have a Twitter page and Instagram page. If you type in glue into the search bar, I think you should be able to find it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Following Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it's clear that this rests on the context of a lot of history and, you know, relations yes. between Ukraine and Russia that go back for many, many, many years. But let's just say at least since the breakdown of the Soviet Union, there's been certain mm -hmm. evolutions in that relationship. As someone in, who grew up in Ukraine, can you say a bit about your personal experience of how what we might call Russian dominance or colonialism versus Ukrainian independence and national identity. How did you experience that tension in your own day-to-day -day experience growing up? Thank you. Uh, it's a very good question. I'll start very quickly by emphasizing the, the word colonialism. I think it's hugely important to determine exactly what Russia had been doing on the occupied territories for, well, I would say 300 plus years. Actually, before the full-scale invasion, I mean, the war started in 2014, at least the active phase of it. People, at least in Italy and in some other European countries, they haven't been 
uh, studying Russian colonialism. They have focused on French colonialism, Spanish colonialism, British colonialism, but never Russia. And it could be because Russia technically almost never ventured abroad, abroad as in overseas to, I don't know, Latin America, to India. There have been attempts to, or had been attempts to uh, do so in Africa. But I think when we talk about colonialism, we have to uh, really focus on day-to-day lives. And I think that's what your question is aiming toward. I grew up in Western Ukraine at, in the town of Ivano-Frankivsk. It happens to be a regional center. This uh, whole region is, of course, more you know, Ukrainian due to history, really. There is a lot more, you know, Ukrainian language everywhere, a lot more exposure to all things Ukrainian. But uh, I think it is important to see how Ukrainian and Russian interact in the public sphere. When I was a kid at the age of six, I remember uh, the Orange Revolution, we call it, when the you know, pro-European candidate Yushchenko was going against Yanukovych, who was very pro-Russian, who is now in Russia. A lot of people felt this patriotic feeling, you know, this is something that we hadn't experienced for a while since 1991. In my school, you know, we spoke Ukrainian, there's Ukrainian classes, but that's not enough. You could see all these things, you know, in, in other spheres of life. For example, if I wanted to go to the library, trying to get a book for, I, I believe, my uh, foreign literature classes. And usually what you have, and it's in the Western Ukraine, you have a Russian translation. And I believe the person, the librarian, told me that it's 70 to 30. There are 70% of Russian books or Russian language books versus the Ukrainian, uh, you know, the Ukrainian stuff. And I think that's a key determinant in, in actually how Ukraine was developing. Uh, up until 2014, I, I saw it myself when I was interacting with people from other parts of Ukraine who are predominantly Russian-speaking, although I think this point uh, has been overemphasized by the Russian propaganda. I really enjoyed going to Crimea. I think I went seven or eight summers in a row to, you know, to stay there with my parents for the summer vacation. Sometimes you could encounter the people in Crimea, for example, they wouldn't all be very positive toward Ukrainian speakers. I could see it just, I'm a kid, right? Say I'm like nine, 10 years old, trying to, you know, ask for something, maybe uh, where to go. And people, you know, re responded in Russian, of course. Uh, but I could see sometimes some of the, you know, older ladies, they were uh, either smirking, you know, if they felt like something was off or they were looking at me weird. But that's fine. You know, I, I didn't pay much attention to it. I would go to camps as well. So if I'm going to camp with uh, a lot of other kids from, say, uh, Donetsk region, from uh, Odessa, from other places, you know, people usually speak Russian there. And actually, with kids, I had no issues whatsoever. We would speak Ukrainian and Russian to each other, no problem. I think when it comes to actual uh, adults, then yes, the, then you could definitely feel some form of discrimination, some form of lack of acceptance, really. I think another important aspect, when you are in Ukraine, people don't judge you uh, for speaking Russian. It's a huge misconception that people have in Russia, perhaps. They believe that there is discrimination against Russian speakers. I remember stories from 2014. Uh, that Ukrainians are killing Russian kids. They're, I can't believe I'm saying this. They eat them for breakfast. 
guess what? In my town, there is a Russian school. Some of my, you know, friends would go there, would go to that school. There have been no problems with the use of any language. Russian, Ukrainian people just, you know, got on with their lives. Especially when I go, when I went to uh, do my bachelor's in Lithuania, I studied at the LCC International University. It's a North American institution. We had kids from all over, you know, we call it post-USSR. I just call it everything that was occupied by Russia. So you, you have people come from Kazakhstan, from Belarus, from Kyrgyzstan. And the funny thing is, even th those Ukrainians and Russians, and perhaps some of them really understand Ukrainian, you would still speak Russian with them. And I felt, and I am from Western Ukraine, right? I didn't study Russian at all. And I mean in school. Uh, but I, I learned it through books, through uh, social media, through TV shows. And I really felt like I was compelled, but in a, in a weird way, right? My conscience told me, hey, they're speaking Russian to you. You should reply in Russian to them. Even though, for example, they're Ukrainians, they understand Ukrainian. And I still, my mind switched to Russian to respond to them. And I think it took me some years to, you know, adapt to it and start actually speaking Ukrainian to those who understand it. This, I would call it submission in a way. It was so unnoticeable, yet it was so important and vital to the identity that a Ukrainian might have, whereby you are in a way compelled. But again, this is not physical, you know, you don't have to do this, but you're just feeling like this is something you should do and you switch to it. And over time, this Russian colonialism, this heavy use of Russian language, Russian culture, Russian stereotypes, it penetrated all the spheres of life. We have only started dealing with this post-2014, post the invasion of Crimea and the invasion in the Donbass. We have started seeing a lot more Ukrainian music. And it works in these mysterious, mysterious sociological ways, right? It starts with a couple of words, then you start singing, then you start probably thinking in Ukrainian. And that's a whole different worldview, a whole different culture. Being able to emphasize what, you know, had been erased for generations versus what the Russian propaganda is portraying, those are different things. We're not trying to eliminate all things Russian. We're trying to focus on the stuff that had been repressed effectively for centuries. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that the full-scale invasion has shifted these factors? I think Russia is probably the only country who is capable of uprooting everything that they're trying to fight for. It is exactly, you know, their protection of Russian speakers that is pushing all the Russian speakers to turn to Ukrainian, to go back to the roots, if you will. Even for those Russians who are, you know, of Russian ancestry. I have a friend who uh, whose parents are, you know, of Russian descent, and they, they moved to Ukraine in the Soviet Union times, and she never spoke a word of Ukrainian. She understands it, but she never spoke a word. And, you know, ha being like a Ukrainian of Russian descent, I mean, of course, I could understand where people would come from, but I couldn't understand exactly why they wouldn't choose to switch. Uh, and she told me that with the full-scale invasion, not in 2014, she realized that it was important to rid herself of anything that is Russian, because that is, that is the language, that is the culture. It is really important to emphasize just how much pain Putin's invasion has caused. Mm -hmm. All the Russian speakers, all the territories that he is trying to 
air quotes, liberate, are actively switching to Ukrainian because that way, at least, you know, the feeling is Putin will not be able to claim the liberation of the Russian-speaking lands. This untangling must happen. We have to understand that Russia is really trying to recolonize, you know, recolonize the mines in the first place. Luckily for us, Ukraine withstood. And I, I never had any doubts that we would withstand just because I know how passionate people are about protecting our independence and our freedom. Mm-hmm. We have seen in the last couple of weeks decisive and rapid counterattacks from Ukraine regaining territory that Russia had occupied post 24th of February. How are you observing these counterattacks and what do you think it means for Ukraine going forward and for the trajectory of the war? Thank you for the question. I think there are different perspectives that I'll focus on in more detail. I think, first of all, from the military point of view, it's a gigantic physical blow to the Russian forces. People have counted more than 500 pieces of equipment lost to the Ukrainian army, either through direct you know, combat or to capture. So Ukraine is now able to repair them and get them back into the fight. That could be done probably within one month, depending on this, the scale, the scope of damages to the vehicles. But we have seen how they would you know, go back very quickly with the captured equipment. I think another part is the change of initiative. Essentially, what Ukraine has shown, well, first of all, the Ukrainian general staff is amazing at planning decisive blows. Of course, you know, nothing is perfect. And I'm sure there are a lot of mistakes that we'll learn more about after the war. But this interaction, I believe it was role-played with the UK and the US. They were able to show prowess. They were able to make sure that they weakened the Russian supply lines. And I think HIMARS is the true game changer in this war. The arrival of it and at the end of June really has changed the situation in the battlefield. A Russian got less ammo, less fuel. Their supply lines beca- became fragile. Russian forces like to amass a lot of uh, ammo and fuel in one place. And then, of course, HIMARS uh, launchers are able to, you know, kind of nullify that advantage. A change of initiative is important because, well, first of all, it signals to the West that Russia is very much incapable. All these weapons that are flowing, they keep triggering Russian threats. And we're able to see that appeasement does not work because Russia understands power. They understand raw strength. Russia had posed itself as the second strongest military in the world. Perhaps they didn't consider China, but that's neither here nor there. What we now know is Ukraine is able to counterattack. Ukraine is able to employ all the Western weapons that are provided very skillfully and strike wherever Russia doesn't expect. Ukraine is capable of fulfilling large-scale offensives. We liberated 8,000 square kilometers. First of all, Ukraine can and will get more weapons. The West has to realize that Ukraine is capable. The question is how many Ukrainian soldiers and civilians have to die for Germany and other countries to arrange modern Western battle tanks. But essentially what we're talking about is Ukraine will be able to defeat Russia. The question is when? Ukraine will not stop. Ukraine will regain access and control over all the territories that we, we have lost, and that includes Crimea. Essentially, it's also a call 
to people in occupation, they realize that they're not abandoned, you know, to all those people. Hey, we're not going to leave you alone. We are coming for you and we will restore justice. I think that's something many Ukrainians are feeling right now. We're happy that our military is capable of defending us. And we're happy that there is a grand plan, perhaps, for the complete deoccupation of the territories that Russia has conquered illegally. To my last point, why this is important, we have seen a lot of panic in the Russian media. There are more moderate voices, and they're trying to stick to reality more more so than not. And there are hardliners. The hardliners are pushing Russia to do something different, to perhaps strike the, the command centers, right? They had been trying to threaten Ukraine with that for months. They're looking for traitors. So they're doing so-called counter-reconnaissance. You know, they're trying to find people who are not of the same mind in their ranks. And this is the sign of different ruptures. The more the Russian propaganda starts breaking, and we have seen that Different telegram channels led by military journalists, right? War correspondents. They are pushing out different messages. That means that the propaganda at the very top and and the Kremlin is is not able to generate the same message for all the telegram channels and the media. We think of Russia as a complete dictatorship, which is correct. But there is still the need to rely on the public consensus, or at least trying to shape the public consensus, which is very difficult if you've set the expectations too high. You know, you have the revolution of the rising expectations. If you bring this bar too high and you don't you don't deliver on it, people have the discrepancy. This is what we were promised, but this is exactly what we got. The moment Ukraine wins more on the battlefield, the more ruptures we're going to see and the more panic They're generating so much panic and hype around, oh, we're going to attack Mykolaiv, you know, uh, up from Kherson, right? Which that is not possible because you're cut off. But they're still trying to generate some form of hopeful message amid all the panic. And you cannot do that if you're losing in reality. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you said earlier, it's brilliant that Ukraine has been counterattacking so effectively. But as you said, I'm also always aware that there are a lot of costs that go with that in terms of lives lost and, you know, not everyone comes home from the front. Talking about the Russian domestic context, it seems very likely Ukraine will manage to retake more, if not all, of the territory that Russia had occupied, which is huge failure for Russia. What do you see as the flow and effects from that within Russia? Well, I think I have to emphasize that, of course, we only want to restore our territorial integrity and the lands that were occupied. We're fighting for the people who were put into occupation without their will. Of course, within the internationally recognized borders, Ukraine has no business attacking any of the Russian lands. And I think that's something we have to keep in mind because Russia is already spreading some, you know, disinformation that Ukraine will attack into Russia that will only sacrifice a lot more of the Ukrainian military. I think our president said it very eloquently, in Ukraine, lives matter. Just before I dive a little bit deeper into the question, I think uh, Mick Ryan, uh, Michael Kaufman, uh, Thomas Steiner, and Mark Hertling, they do amazing breakdowns of the military side of it. So first of all, Putin's regime, of course, is trying to 
pursue a very imperialist, colonialist agenda. They have tried to make sure that there is a message that Ukraine is somehow a brother nation to Russia, right? Again, it's historically not true, but we have seen Putin's articles on uh, the official Kremlin website and in his speech on the 22nd of February. Putin is using the concept of a nation. He's trying to put this forward and say, hey, we are, of course, a multi-ethnic country. Being Russian is probably the first thing that one might you know, take a look at and say, oh, yes, this is what I affiliate with. But then we also saw when the war started that Putin said, I am also a Chechen, I am a Tatar, I am all things, you know, not technically Russian. And I think that's very important. With the Russian demographics, you know, going down, predominantly the what Russia calls themselves as like Slavic Russia, whatever that means, they understand that they cannot get a lot of people from the two big cities, Moscow and St. Petersburg. So they resort to recruiting people from the poorer regions or regions that are usually ethnically different. And I think one of the scenarios that I see, uh, you know, this pan out is really, you know, internal clashes in, in, in Russia. I do not believe Putin will be able to bring a very good outcome to the people, you know, with the rising expectations and the crushing defeat in the East and more to come, I'm hoping the general staff uh, of Ukraine has a very good plan for uh, recapture of the South, probably within the, the next year. Internal clashes in Russia will come sooner or later. A coup will not be successful because there is no properly charismatic person, if we're talking in Weberian terms, to replace Putin. And what will happen when Putin is no longer able to dictate or shape the public opinion. So I'm thinking it is very much possible that we're going to see this, you know, dissent growing in size and clashes will happen. And I'm thinking more or less ethnic populations of uh, Chechnya, of uh, Tatarstan, of uh, Ingushetia. There are a lot of people who believe that they are robbed by the Russian government and they had been robbed for generations. It's a matter of time till we see, you know, them unite against the Kremlin. Mm -hmm. So a civil conflict scenario within Russia. What if the claim that Putin might use tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine before we get to that point, if he becomes increasingly desperate? Putin, he might be pathological, but he is not as suicidal. Putin and his surrounding elite they're not suicidal. They're trying to achieve what they can with the conventional means, but they're not going to trying to offset their advantage, their upper hand over the population with the general mobilization or a, a nuclear strike. Nuclear strike doesn't resolve the goals of the Russian regime, which is to capture Ukraine, to colonize it, to use its resources, which Ukraine has a lot of. Ukraine is very much I would say, a key partner of the European Union in the years to come because we have a lot of shale gas. That's one reason why Russia thought it was important to invade Crimea, which has a lot of oil and gas, and the east, where you can see a lot of uh, you know, gas reserves. The logic went, if Putin is successful, we'll get access to amazing, amazing human capital, people who you know, work on these military factories and uh, industries and the resources. And if you follow the propaganda, they have been threatening 
the world with nuclear strikes. They have they have threatened to strike Germany. They have threatened to kill major EU politicians. That, however, is more of more of an outcry uh, of an animal that is about to die. The victory of Ukraine in the battlefield is the only way that we can defeat Russia, even if they were to use weapons of mass destruction. Ukrainians will tell you this very specific thing, and I certainly am of this mindset. Even if Russia uses nuclear warheads, Ukrainians will not stop. Ukrainians have nothing to lose, and our brave defenders and our brave people who survive in occupation, they will keep fighting till the end. Mm -hmm. There's, of course, a lot of rebuilding that Ukraine is actually already doing, and a whole lot more rebuilding that will need to take place as more territories are liberated, but also just from the bombing and kind of brutal sort of missile mm -hmm. campaigns that have taken place. So what do you see as UK Ukraine's key strengths going forward, moving into that rebuilding process? We can draw a lot of parallels with other countries. The most recent European example, perhaps, is Bosnia. Bosnia and Herzegovina was pummeled through the Yugoslav wars. A lot of infrastructure was destroyed. Many people died. When rebuilding Ukraine, we have to pay attention to what Ukrainians are saying is important. We have to make sure that there is oversight in terms of managing funds and all of this. The point is really that we have to make sure that there is good cooperation on both sides. You know, the European Union, I guess the World Bank, the US, the UK, you know, Australia also. Uh, banding together, making sure there is a good plan that you know Ukrainians contributed to or authored, because it is up to Ukrainians. They, you know, we 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 know probably better how to rebuild our country. Uh, with Bosnia in particular, there wasn't enough industry rebuilt. The problem is Ukraine will have to get up right from its current state of being destroyed. Uh, there's a lot of industries that are probably unrecoverable, if you will especially in Mariupol, you know, with the Azovstal destroyed, some other plants pummeled. We have to build industries. That could mean finally investing in gas and oil extraction, which is going to be new, but it's going to be building up on those plants from 2013. That means rebuilding uh, what was lost and what is still probably profitable. That may include some form of steel factories, but I would rather see uh, maybe like high value added industries, uh, sort of like what we see in Taiwan with semiconductors, we can maybe partner with other European countries, make sure there is, you know, that Ukrainians who, again, amazing human capital, there are a lot of experts, we are able to get the right funds to build the businesses that we think will be game changing. Uh, unfortunately, you know, after the Soviet Union, the economy was stagnating. I mean, it was growing, but it wasn't developing through you know high value added goods. Of course, that means more investments into the agricultural field. We have to be able to harvest a lot more. I think with the human capital, the know-how from the West, the, the technology and the money, we are we'll be able to build a truly digital and you know modern country. Ukraine is already moving in that direction. We just really need to make sure that Russia gets out of the country, that they stop firing missiles. And as soon as the recovery plan, the rebuilding plan, uh, you know, gets underway, 
are hardworking people, and Ukraine is very much hardworking. I think with the right planning, with the right oversight from the West, with the focus on industries and infrastructure, we really can make a difference. And what people in Ukraine are saying right now is do we have this chance to become a regional leader. That means going forward into the European Union. It's the know-how, it's the human capital, it's the resources, it's the desire, which there's plenty of in both Ukraine and I hope in the West to facilitate the growth of you know a true regional and probably world leader because we will be experts in security and we'll you know be able to play a bigger role in conflict resolution abroad. Uh, I think that's something that we still need to do a better job of because we are seeing tons of regional conflicts and the rebuilding of Ukraine will be crucial to that. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And certainly that desire and that human capital and capability is already really clear. Well, thanks so much, Alexander. It's been a really wide-ranging and interesting discussion, and I very much appreciate you sharing your reflections on all of these issues. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Mr Smith for our theme music.